turn in God's word this morning to two separate passages, both in the New Testament. First, in the book of the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 12, page 893 in your pew Bibles. The first 19 verses of Acts chapter 12, and then we will turn to 1 Corinthians 14, page 932 in your pew Bibles. Both of them have something significant to say to us about prayer. The Word of God from Acts chapter 12. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. And when he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him out to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and sentry guards stood at the, the entrance. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals, and Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly... The angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, well, it must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking. And when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said, and then he left for another place. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards, 
and ordered that they be executed. Now we turn to 1 Corinthians 14, page 932, beginning our reading at verse 12. So it is with you. Since you are eager for the gifts of the Spirit, try to excel in those that build up the church. For this reason, the one who speaks in a tongue should pray that they may interpret what they say. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So what shall I do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will also pray with my understanding. I will sing with my spirit, but I will also sing with my understanding. Otherwise, when you are praising God in the spirit, how can someone else who is now put in the position of an inquirer say amen to your thanksgiving since they do not know what you are saying? You are giving thanks well enough, but no one else is edified. These two readings constitute the text for this morning. And I want to start by saying something very important and ask you to listen carefully as I do. Tiun esten prosyuksamai to pneumati prosyuksamai dekai to noi. Now, I dare say that meant next to nothing to almost all of you. I know there are few who might have understood the Greek New Testament. But I say it meant almost nothing because while I read it, I tried to put a little emphasis into it at the right places, at least. You might say to paraphrase Paul in 1 Corinthians 14, I read those two lines with my spirit, that there was some feeling there, but not much meaning. So let's try it again. So what shall I do? I will pray with my spirit. I will also pray with my mind. Now, I suppose that most of you understood all the words I just read, but when I read them like a robot, the meaning might be there, but the feeling is missing. To paraphrase Paul again, you might say, I read that one with my mind. Meaning was communicated, but feeling was absent. But what I just read that you did understand is very important. And I want to explicate why and how it is and zero in on the implications of what I just did in the introduction to this sermon on one particular matter, the matter of prayer. And ask, what does it mean to pray with your mind and with your spirit? Not with your mind or your spirit, not with meaning or feeling, but with both. And to do that by going first to a prayer meeting. Probably the most famous prayer meeting in the history of the Christian church. 
It paints a picture of a praying church and a picture we would like to imitate, I hope. Come along with me for just a couple of minutes now to that prayer meeting. It was an impossible situation. Just imagine it. Herod is on the throne. Agrippa I, monster of a man. In a whole line of Herods, all of whom were equally monstrous. This Herod's grandfather was the one who had killed the babies in Bethlehem. This Herod's grandfather had also killed his own son, this Herod's father, so he wouldn't become king and threaten the throne. This Herod, Agrippa I, apparently found murder amusing. He had James executed. And when he found out it pleased the Jews, he said, go grab Peter next. Paradoxically, this happened, by the way, about 10 years after another Judean had been taken during Passover time and put in prison and executed. You, of course, know that that was Jesus. Paradoxically, we can determine from other historical data that in this Herod's reign, this must have happened to Peter during Holy Week, A.D. 44. It's a very vivid story with lots of details that only Peter could have known, a first-hand account that he gave to Luke, who wrote down everything just as he was told. Only Peter would have known he was in a cell guarded by four squadrons of soldiers, four squads of four each, three hours on, nine hours off. Normally with just one chain, but in Peter's case, two, one to each arm, and each arm chained to one of two soldiers while two stood at the doors. Nobody was going to let this prisoner loose. He'd been there for nearly a week, and his execution was on the horizon. It was an impossible situation. So Peter was kept in prison, Luke tells us, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The parallels to ten years before and the arrest of Jesus and his execution continue. The church prayed earnestly for Peter. That's the very same word you, Luke uses in his gospel to describe the prayer of Jesus in Gethsemane. He prayed earnestly. And it's a root, uh, the root of that word means to, to reach, to, to stretch, to try to grab hold of God. The church was reaching out to God, begging for him to listen. It was an urgent prayer. It was a prayer Luke even goes on to say they prayed to God as if there was someone else to pray to, but Luke's way of underscoring the fact that they had nothing else possible to do. 
There was no other way for Peter to be helped but to beg God to reach for God, to stretch out to God and beg him to do something for Peter. It was also a prayer of the church. This was not the prayer group that met on Tuesday afternoon. This was not a few people calling a prayer line to get the latest message. This was not just a few concerned friends of Peter. This was the church earnestly stretching out the arms of faith with a sincere request for a possible solution to an impossible situation. Now listen. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, something happened. Before the prayers knew how God would respond to their prayers, before the prayers knew God was responding to their prayers, God was arranging the answer to their prayers simultaneously with their praying. Peter was sleeping between two guards. Now get the change in this man, who not all that long before had been scared to death to admit to a little servant girl outside in the courtyard that he knew Jesus. Now he's chained to two heavily armed Roman guards. For all he knew, on the night before his execution, and sound asleep. Two guards, two chains, suddenly an angel appears. And nobody wakes up. I'm, I'm amused by the next line, the angel struck Peter. Didn't tap him on the shoulder. Didn't whisper in his ear, Peter, Peter. He struck him. And when he did, the chains fell off. Now, that ought to make some noise in a prison cell. But nobody still woke up, including, I'm thinking, Peter. Put on your clothes and sandals, the angel says. And Peter gets up and does it, but he's still in some kind of a daze without realizing exactly what's going on. He thinks he's dreaming. So nobody still wakes up. Then he walks with the angel, and they passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city, and it opened for them by itself. By the time Peter came to himself, interesting metaphor, he came to himself, he was free. Now I know, he said, without a doubt, that the Lord has answered our prayers. Now what am I going to do? His reaction is the right one. He goes right to the house where the church is gathered to pray and says, I have to share the good news with them. He knocks on the door or calls out or whatever he did, but the door was barred and the servant girl, Rhoda, stands on the other side. I love Rhoda. She stands there and I'm imagining she must have said something like, who's there? And the voice on the other side said, it's Peter. And she didn't need any more proof. She knew right away it was Peter, but she was so excited 
She didn't open the door. In fact, she was so captivated by the thrill of her prayer and the other prayers being answered that she ran from the door, leaving him outside so she could tell the disciples. But she did do that at least. The disciples. Fervently, earnestly praying for Peter. He's outside the door. And in unison they say, you are out of your mind. Giving away their thought that praying was their responsibility, but results were not to be expected. And when Rhoda insisted, they said, well, and they're still in the inner room. Peter's still out in the doorstep. Then it must be his angel. When you can't deny that something amazing has happened, then see if you can find another way to explain it away rationally so you don't have to resort to the power of prayer. One fairly reliable commentator whom I consult regularly said something just like that at this point in his commentary. He said, in this story, we do not necessarily see a miracle. It may well be the story of a thrilling rescue. But it was so thrilling they left out all the details and made up a, a meaning. I mean, this is totally gratuitous. It was a rescue by God and miraculous. Finally, they opened the door, and there he stands. And they are astonished, surprised, not just at how God answered the prayer, but initially that he had answered it at all. Peter had been in a daze for a while. Rhoda had been hysterical for a while. The disciples had been in denial for a while. But God answers prayer. Now, with that as a background, we turn to 1 Corinthians 14. We have just examined the anatomy of a prayer meeting. Now, let's examine the anatomy of prayer. After discussing spiritual gifts, Paul says to the Corinthians and to us, so it is with you. Since you are eager to have spiritual gifts, try to excel in gifts that build up the church. Not a bad message for a church like Ivanrest. Just wrapping up the last details of a project called Refresh. To build up the church, the, the building, the place where we meet and study and pray and fellowship together. Three words briefly out of that text about God's construction project in the church. Since you are eager to have spiritual gifts, try to excel in gifts that 
build up the church. Eagerness is first. The Corinthians were eager, eager for spiritual gifts. The word behind it is a word that in Greek is just transliterated into English as zeal or zealous. You're zealous about spiritual gifts. Zealous is the very word in Greek that the, the zealots chose as their name. A, a political party among the Jews that many view as fanatic. So strongly did they believe what they thought about what ought to happen to their nation that they pledged life and limb and position and possession to defend the premise. They were the zealous ones, most of whom died for the cause. They were the eager ones. Now, you ought to be like that, Paul says to the Christians in Corinth and the Christians here. You should be zealots whose undying commitment is for whatever it is that makes this group stronger, healthier, better, eager. Since you're eager to have spiritual gifts, try to excel in certain gifts. There's a word just sort of especially designed for a guy like Paul who was a man of superlatives. If he couldn't think of an adjective to say how big and wonderful and explosive the truth was that he was mentioning, he'd make up a new word to explain it. Eager to excel. Excel means to be so full as to spill over. To have in abundance. To be extremely rich in something. To overflow to have leftovers, to abound. That's the way Paul was, kind of the incarnation of energy, excitable and exciting, and so excited about what it was he had to communicate that regularly in the New Testament, editors have fixed it up, by the way, but regularly in the New Testament, he forgets to finish his sentence because he's so eager to get on with the next thought. That's the man who says, try to excel. Try to overflow, try to abound, try to bubble over. Try to be so full of something that it just oozes out of you all over the place. Since you're eager to have spiritual gifts, try to excel in gifts that build up the church, that edify. Be a zealot to overflow with whatever it is that can edify the church eager to excel in edifying, in things that build people up, that build community up, that bring people together. Things like encouragement and praise and inspiration. Things that enrich and uplift and excite and restore. Longfellow, the poet, put it into a simple little four-line poem once when he said, and, and the poem was itself a prayer. Lord, help me live from day to day in such a self-forgetful way that even when I kneel to pray, my prayer 
may be for others. Since you're eager to have spiritual gifts, try to excel in gifts that build up the church. Well, he says that, and the next sentence begins, now for this reason, that is with a view to building up, constructing the church, making the church all God wants it to be, for this reason, for refreshing, and then he addresses several topics, only one of which I want to zero in on for a moment this morning, prayer, and ask three simple questions about it. First of all, what? And when I ask that question, I don't mean what is prayer. I think we know what prayer is. I ask what, and I think Paul wants us to ask what, and God through Paul wants us to ask what. What can I do to build up the church? What can I do if I really am eager to excel in what God wants me to do? What should I do to enrich and encourage and build up and inspire the church? And the first answer Paul would give is pray. Pray alone. Pray together. Pray at home. Pray at church. Pray at work. Pray at school. Pray at the ball diamond. Pray in the woods when you're on a walk. Pray on the phone. Pray with the prayer group. Pray for the church. Pray for the members. Pray for people by name. And ask yourself, even if you don't know the person whose name you mention, what more edifying thing could I possibly do? What more edifying activity could I possibly engage in than having a conversation with God about you? And think what might happen if most of us did that. Well, then the question is how? And I don't mean how do you pray. Uh, do you kneel down? Do you fold your hands? Do you bow your head? Do you close your eyes? But in what manner? In what attitude? And, and that's where the text comes in that I quoted at the very beginning, first in Greek and then in English. So what shall I do? Paul says, well, I'll pray with my spirit, but I'll also pray with my mind. I'll pray with my Spirit. And remember, Paul is saying it's with my spirit, not God's spirit. It's not that God's spirit is uninvolved, but my spirit must be involved as well. <coughs> my personality, my insight, my feeling, my will, myself, I have to be involved in my praying. My spirit is that little part of me you met when I first read 1 Corinthians 14, 15 in Greek. You didn't understand what I was saying, but you did kind of know how I felt about it. Paul's first bit of advice about how to pray is by putting myself into my prayer. But he also says my mind, and it's the prayer's mind he has in mind, when I pray, I must use my understanding, my thoughts, my thought processes, my way of thinking. Paul's second bit of advice about prayer is to think about what I'm saying. That's the part of me you met when I first read 1 Corinthians 14, 15 in English. But what I hope you learn from that little exercise at the beginning 
is that reading simply with my spirit is largely unintelligible, and reading simply with my mind is largely uninspiring. And the same is true of prayer. Perhaps the fullest interpretation of this text would be something like this. I will pray in deep spiritual ecstasy and in full possession of my mental faculties. Here's how it is in the message. So what's the solution? The answer is simple enough. Do both. I should be spiritually free and expressive as I pray, but I should also be thoughtful and mindful as I pray. And then finally, we have to ask, why? Why do I pray? Why should I pray with my spirit and my mind? And it may surprise you, not, not to know this, but that Paul's first response to that question is, so the one who finds himself among you and does not understand can say amen. It's a kind of an obtuse way of saying, so somebody who doesn't know God the way you do can know God. Why do I pray? It's basically so that I, the prayer, and those for whom I pray, and anyone else who knows I pray, or listens to me pray, or engages in prayer with me, can touch God better. So people will know that we, the people of God, are a people of prayer, praying to the God who always responds to prayer. Notice I didn't say to the God who always gives us precisely what we ask in prayer. That is not the case. But he always listens. He always responds. Nancy Spiegelberg got that point when she wrote a short poem called Different Answers. They're almost unbelievable. Some prayer answers you sent so fast they took my breath away and made me laugh. I thank you. I thank you there were other times. It seems you've left me way out in the dark alone to wait until you became more important than any answer I was looking for. The place is Africa. The site is a medical mission school orphanage complex way out in the bush somewhere. One day a woman walks into the clinic, obviously pregnant and obviously in labor, and has along with her her little two-year-old girl. Despite all of their best efforts, they cannot save this woman's life, but they do save the baby, a premature infant. And despite the heat of Africa, the one thing that that baby needs more than anything else right after birth is a hot water bottle to keep it warm. 
and the only hot water bottle the clinic had burst last week. Every day, the people in the compound get together for prayer, and that includes the kids in the orphanage. And a nurse explained to them what had happened, how this woman had come in and has, had, was too sick to be saved and had given birth to a tiny little baby whose health was in jeopardy and left a two-year-old daughter as an orphan behind her. And one of the other orphans, a 10-year-old named Ruth, prayed this, please, God, send us a water bottle. It'll be no good tomorrow, God, as the baby will be dead, so please send it this afternoon. And then she added, and while you're at it, would you please send a dolly for the little girl so she'll know you really love her. The nurse who was leading the prayer meeting debated whether she could, at least internally, even say amen to a prayer like that. It seemed so far-fetched and unrealistic. But they concluded their meeting and that afternoon, a big box was delivered to the compound. It had been shipped to them from overseas. And all the children gathered around to see what it was. They pried open the top, and it was full of handmade jerseys, one for each of them in bright colors. And while it was being unpacked, in the middle of it, in the middle of a box full of knitted jerseys, a lone hot water bottle. The nurse wrote, I cried. I had not asked God to send it. I had not truly believed that he would. But Ruth, the one who had prayed it the day before, ran into the room and up to the front and said, if God sent the bottle, he must have sent the dolly too. And she went to the box and pawed through it and there at the very bottom was a beautiful doll and she said to the nurse can I please go with you to bring it to the little girl so she'll know Jesus loves her too and the nurse concluded that parcel had been on its way for five months packed up by my former Sunday school class whose leader had heard and obeyed God's prompting to send a hot water bottle even to the equator. And one of the girls had put in a dolly for an African child five months before an answer to the believing prayer of a 10-year-old to bring it that afternoon. That is the God to whom we pray. Let's do so. Oh God, it doesn't always turn out so dramatically, but help us to know that when we talk to you, we talk to a loving Father who cares about our needs more than we even could. And help us to pray with our spirit, with our feeling, with our personality, with our self, and also with our mind, with our brain, with our thoughts, with our, even our questions, in all honesty. But help us, 
Help us, encourage us, push us, move us. Draw us to pray. In Jesus' name.